0: Today's show is brought to you by Pleasureland RV, best in the Midwest. Learn more at PleasurelandRV.com. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830 on this January 29th, last Sunday of January 2023. I am Rob Drieslein, managing editor, publisher of the Outdoor News Publications. Very excited to be with you for the next hour. A number of fun headlines, fun headlines to kick around here Uh Over the next 60 minutes, we will have uh, Sarah Stroman, the DNR Commissioner, who was our first guest on this broadcast back in October when we kicked it off, when we kicked off WCCO Outdoors. Uh, She's going to join us a little bit to talk about the DNR budget. That unveiled this past week. There's a lot to talk about in that, so we will chat with her a little bit. Then we'll get Out of Doors. We'll stop talking about uh, the books, and we will chat with my friend Tony Peterson a little bit about Something that goes on throughout the months of January and February, that's bunny hunting and squirrel hunting. Yes, squirrel and rabbit seasons continue in Minnesota until the end of February. I think a lot of folks think all small game seasons end at the end of the year, the end of the calendar year, like back on December 31st when grouse and some of our other seasons ended, but not so with rabbits and squirrels. And Tony is someone that enjoys getting out and doing that. Uh, then a little bonus guest. I decided to just going to jump in at the end of the broadcast. Eli Mansfield. Eli is the uh, president of the state chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and they had their big icebreaker event, sort of like the Minnesota Rendezvous for that organization. Uh, BHA has its big national Rendezvous, typically out west in Boise, Idaho, or uh, past several years has been in Missoula. But then a lot of the individual states have kind of their own, you know, mini event. And sometimes they've done it in the summer, sometimes in the fall. Seems like this Minnesota chapter has done pretty well with a winter event the past couple of years. So we're going to check in with Eli and see how that went. I know they got at least one announcement that came out of that uh, involving, I think, the cook-off. So we'll, uh, we'll we'll chat with Eli about that and see if they indeed had a good time. Uh, several headlines that I thought I would uh, chat about here. Man, where, where, where did Start, You know, actually, before we get to headlines, I want to talk about a phenomenon I saw in my backyard this weekend. I don't think I've ever talked about it before on this broadcast, and it might seem a little French to the outdoors, but it involved robins. Remember when we thought robins were a harbinger of spring? Well, they're, they're really not anymore. I saw a robin in my backyard eating crab apples out of one of my crab apple trees at least two weeks ago. You can look at my Twitter feed. Uh, Outdoor Scribe is my Twitter handle, by the way, uh, if you if you want to see. I, I tweeted about that a couple weeks ago. And then this weekend, folks, I am not kidding you. There had to be a minimum of 50 to 75 robins in my in my yard this weekend. I mean, with all the snow, uh, you know, right? Would, it's robins, we used to think, you know, when you saw the first robin of the spring, that meant spring was here. That's not true anymore. Robins hang around all winter. And they eat these crab apples. And the crab apples in my tree, you know, they've been they've been hanging there right since last fall, right? That's when they ripened. And birding friends of mine, people who know a lot more about birding than I do, will tell you that those as those crab apples freeze and thaw, there's moisture in there, and that it actually kind of crystallizes and there's sugar in those crab apples, and it actually ferments a little. And it's not out of the question that there's like a little bit of alcohol in these crab apples. I'm not making this up. This is something my birding friends have told me. Uh, Sharon Stately, the bird chick who joined us here uh, several weeks ago. And watching these robins this weekend, folks, I I totally believe it. They were belligerent. They were loud. They were fighting. I'm not kidding. These robins were fighting. Like my, my sidewalk's got hundreds of these little berries on it, right, these crab apples that have fallen on my sidewalk. And, I mean, it looks like enough for every robin in the world to enjoy for months, right? And I, I swear, I watch three robins fighting over one berry, and I swear it's because they're intoxicated. They're they're flying into my door. Then after a while, you know, they're just gorging themselves on these berries. And then occasionally you'll see them, if a few of them will be sitting up in the tree, and I swear, people, they look zoned out. They look hungover when they're sitting up in, in, in this tree after a pound in all these fermented berries. And, you know, I'm glad they're eating the things because I don't want to have to clean them up. You know, if they fall on the ground, I'm afraid they're going to attract other vermin. So, not no, not that I consider Robin's vermin. <laughs> uh, so I'm glad they're, they're eating these things. But it is hilarious to watch. I got one crab apple in my backyard. I got one in the front yard. And they are absolutely going to town eating these things. And I started to calculate how many crab apples, this flock of robins was eating like per hour. Uh, You you watch one robin in the tree, and he's eating two or three or four or five of these things per minute. And then you figure there's, you know, they're not all eating at the same time. There's probably 30 of them eating at any one time. That's like, you know, what's the math there, 60 to 100 berries per minute? It's over an hour, uh, they these these robins can clean up. A flock of robins can come up, and they can really clean up uh, a tree fairly quickly. Uh, and like I say, I'm glad they're eating them. I think my friend Sharon, who who joined us a few weeks back, she has told me that the robins that we have here in the winter actually are Canadian robins. That you know, that this this is you know this is south for them, right? The robins that we have that typically nest here they're probably further south I don't know Illinois Missouri places like that but these are so that's why, you know these are these big belligerent Canadian robins that are getting hammered on our on our crab apples and isn't nature an amazing place so uh, if you got a crab apple and you see similar behavior you might be watching uh, the same thing and you know speaking of belligerent birds uh, Vanita uh, soccer she had me on her show Monday morning. To talk a little bit about what up in Coon Rapids, they've got some turkeys that are causing problems, I guess. Uh, and this is a common issue we're hearing about in the metro areas, suburban areas. Some of these wild turkeys that have rebounded, or you know, they were they didn't exist in the state; they were trapped and transported, and then uh, they they took hold in the southeast and then moved around the state. And they they're doing well in the metro. And they're kind of belligerent because they don't get hunted here. That's what I told Vanita. It might be something people don't want to hear, but turkeys in rural areas, they don't act this way around people. I think it's because they know for several months out of the year, they're, they're going to get, they're going to get shot. Uh, They're also smarter in rural areas. I swear, when you go out and you try to call them turkey hunting, you go out and you call birds in rural areas. They've been quote unquote educated by a lot of callers over the years because they do get hunted here in the metro. I swear a turkey will walk through my backyard and I can just with my mouth, make that kind of beep beep beep, kind of real basic turkey calling sound, and they'll stop and they'll look at me and they'll they'll gobble and they'll do the the strut, the tail fan thing. You'd never get away with that with a rural bird. Uh, anyway, I gave Anita my two cents on how I would handle um, turkeys that are causing problems in the metro area. I'd get law enforcement on them, and, and you know what? If it's a problem bird, there's no shortage of turkeys. If if you got to take a few out, well, that's the way it is. I got a break because we've got a great guest coming with us. In just a moment, Sarah Stroman, DNR Commissioner, don't go away. You're listening to WCCO Outdoors. Hey everybody, welcome back, WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. Rob Dreesline is with you for another segment. Stay tuned. In a little bit, we'll have Tony Peterson with us. We're going to talk small game hunting in February. I don't want to waste any time. I want to get right to my next guest, first guest of this week's show, DNR Commissioner Sarah Stroman, who has joined us before. I think she's the first repeat guest we've had here on WCCO Outdoors and she joins us now. Sarah, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing well and I'm honored to be your first repeat guest at the Effect. So thanks for having me.
0: Well, I know you've been on the road a lot this weekend. Uh, I hope uh, you had safe travels and uh, did, did you get up to the uh, BHA uh, Minnesota State Convention? I heard a rumor you might make it, but then you and I were talking off air and I knew you were traveling the other direction <laughs> uh, a couple days ago. So uh, did you get up there?
1: I, I did not. Unfortunately, um, I was hoping to, but uh, I was uh, being mom uh, this good. weekend and taking my son on some college campus visits. So
0: good. Do you lock anything in yet?
1: No, we're still looking. He right. he's got some time, so right. we're we're just doing our first explorations.
0: Excellent, excellent. Well, hey, let's jump into the serious talk here a little bit. Uh, lots of. Budget discussion here in Minnesota. The past several weeks, Governor Tim Walz uh, spent several weeks kind of unveiling pieces of his budget. And this past week, uh, we got uh, we got a whole whole bunch more. I got to think overall, you are pretty happy with how it's shaping up.
1: I'm pretty excited. I think this is um, really an incredible opportunity uh, for Minnesota. The governor has has you know in his recommendation to the legislature, I think made it really clear that. Minnesota's natural resources and outdoors are are an important uh, you know, element in our state. Uh, we value them for their intrinsic value. We, we value them for the recreational opportunities. We value them for their health and wellness opportunities. We value them for the economy. And, and his budget uh, really reflects that with some significant one-time and ongoing investments.
0: There's a lot of, yeah, some new money here uh, in part because of the surplus. Tell us about some of the priorities that that you see for it i know uh, minfish of course the uh, advocacy group for fishing is very excited about a couple key components including some dollars for fish hatcheries uh, as well as boat uh, repairing and and upgrading some of our boat landings around the state
1: yeah absolutely and i think um you know no matter what your favorite outdoor activity in minnesota is um there's probably something in this budget that you are excited about it makes some uh long overdue, in my opinion, uh, and significant investments in uh, infrastructure like our boats accesses, like our fish hatcheries, um, but it also makes investments in the resources themselves, whether it's grassland or wetland restoration. Um, It makes enhancements in the experiences, um, you know, building accessibility, improving the, the signage. And so, The thing that I am most excited about this budget is that it really is a comprehensive approach. It's not based on just plugging holes. It's not based just on what are the funding sources that we have and what's the best we can do with those funding sources, but it's really based on the things that we've heard from Minnesotans they value most and we built the budget and then matched funding to those things.
0: Let's uh, let's go a little deeper. One thing that emerged this week to surprise some of us is that there is a, a proposal for an increase in, this, in the price of a fishing license, as well as, I believe, state parks, stickers, and boating fees, as the, the, the cost to register your boat with the state of Minnesota. I, you know, I understand that these are different pots of money. I'm going to let you explain that to listeners. But I think there's a lot of folks out there that are like full stop. Uh, there's a $17 billion surplus. Why are we talking about increasing some fees? Uh, you want to uh, give us your take on on why that is?
1: Yeah, I, I would love to. Thanks. And um, I've heard those same questions from people over the, the last week. And I think, you know, really, again, it's, it's about that opportunity to achieve those outdoor experiences and the protection of the resources that Minnesotans have told us they value the most. So the increases um, on those things you just mentioned, the fishing licenses, the park vehicle permits, and the the boat registrations are really based on the opportunity for ongoing funding that those fees provide. Those those increases are all gonna be matched with one time um, investments, large investments from our state's general fund surplus, as well as investments out of our capital budget to really create that robust funding package. And so, for example, um, if you are MinFish, if you are an angler, right, um, this budget provides the funding from our fish hatcheries, which produce fish, to store fishing and fishing pier opportunities, and boat accesses, so that no matter how you fish, if you're fishing by boat on the water, you're fishing from shore, you can get out and do that and make sure that experience is a quality experience. And then the fishing license fee increase will pay for fisheries staff ongoing to be able to do more lake survey work, to be able to do that ongoing management of our fish populations, so we make sure the resource is sustainable. So it's really... You know, a robust, comprehensive approach. And we can't do that without each of those fund funding sources playing a role.
0: And i tell me if I'm oversimplifying this, but I want to make sure people understand With the surplus that applies to the general fund. That That's that's where our income taxes go. The Game and Fish Fund, that's where our license dollars go. And that's reliant on a steady supply of, of license dollars coming in. And we've generally seen a, a bit of a decline in the number of people buying licenses. It's also subject to the, whim, to the fact that we're dealing with inflation over, what, six years since we had our last fishing license increase. So that's one reason you've got to talk about a fee increase for one pot of money, even though a different pot of money – has got a surplus. Did I oversimplify that, or is that reasonably
1: accurate? No, you are exactly right. And and most of that general fund surplus, right, is one-time funds. That surplus is not expected to extend out a number of years. Obviously, our duties in managing the state's fisheries won't just be the next year or two, right? They're ongoing. And so we can make the one-time funds work really well for things like modernizing our boat accesses, modernizing our hatcheries. They don't work so well for those ongoing, um, you know, those ongoing works. And as you pointed out, those fees haven't been raised. Fishing hasn't been raised since 2017. Our parks permit fee hasn't been raised since 2017. The boat registration fee hasn't been raised since 2006. And you think about any other, you know, experience or product that people buy today my guess is you're paying more than you were in either 2017 and certainly in in 2006. And so the buying power of those contributions just isn't what it was, you know, when when those were put in place. So this, for example, for a $5 increase in an annual fishing fee, the opportunity is to unlock 110 million dollars, for example, in those one-time general funds to invest in our hatcheries, to invest in um, fishing access, whether it's boating or shore fishing.
0: Yeah, to, to be clear, uh, currently an angling individual license for an adult angler is 25 bucks. It would go up to $30. Uh, so just Correct. to give people a, a little context. Yeah, I, I think people can understand the logic. I do think it's going to be uh, still an uphill swim getting people... So no one likes to see their fees go up, especially when they see government has got a lot of extra dollars kicking around, but I, I think we've tried to explain it as best we can. Uh, this has got to pass the legislature, right, Sarah? This isn't just something the DNR gets to, de- to decree.
1: Uh, yes. Right. Um, sometimes I wish we could decree it, but no, I think it's an important part of the process that our elected officials um, who have been elected to represent Minnesotans get a say in that. And so, Um, this whole package, uh, the fee increase plus the expenditure of those one-time dollars, the capital investments and other general fund dollars, all need to be approved by the legislature. And so, you know, obviously, um, a lot of individual legislators will have a lot of ideas for how to spend uh, those dollars as well. So, again, I think our job is to explain as best we can how we built this budget, why we think this is the responsible thing for minnesota's outdoors and our conservation legacy and why we're asking minnesotans to contribute a little bit more um, ongoing so that we can make the best advantage of these one-time funds for outdoors and make sure we're maintaining that investment longer term
0: this is wcco outdoors rob jerislein chatting with dnr commissioner sarah stroman we just got a moment or two left here with the commissioner a couple other quick questions Commissioner, I asked you this the other day, but I'll ask you on the record. We just had our DNR roundtable. Why didn't this come up at the roundtable, the fee increase, that is? It seemed like it would have been an opportunity to get some direct feedback from stakeholders at that event here, what, nine, ten days ago?
1: Yeah, it certainly would have been. Um, you know, there's, there's no doubt about that. I think the question about how we pay um, for the work of the DNR is an ongoing topic, and certainly with our work on the For the Outdoors, Future funding initiatives. We've been having general, you know, conversations with folks, um, and in fact, the the application and use of fees in a more strategic manner is one of those actions that that came out of that. Um, this, you know, the other factor was just as you noted at the very outset, the governor was releasing the budget in stages, and so part of the budget was out. We had some really exciting news about some of the one-time investments in climate. Uh, adaptation and mitigation, some really exciting news about some of the investments for enhancing outdoor experiences. We just didn't, weren't to the part of the budget to talk about fees. So it, it wasn't, a you know, an attempt to, to hide sort of the, the catch or the bad news. Um, it's just the way that, that this rolled out. But again, I want to emphasize it's really part of that comprehensive um, outdoors budget that, that the DNR has put forward.
0: Sarah Dennis Anderson today at the Star Tribune writing about uh, the carp, invasive carp, uh, Asian carp, working their way up the Mississippi River, uh, and the DNR budget doesn't have any money for the proposed carp barrier that's been suggested down at Lock and Dam Five or Five I always forget which one uh, is. Is that is this going to be an eventual DNR priority? What What do you say to that? Why isn't Why is it not part of the budget?
1: Well, I think to the exact solution um, to most efficiently, most effectively um, address the the potential for CARP um, moving up. There's still some discussion about that, and I have no doubt uh, that the legislature is going to have some discussion about that. Um, we have focused broadly on aquatic invasive species in this budget proposal. Um, we threw a, an increase in the uh, invasive species surcharge on your boat registrations to make sure there are dollars for tribes, for DNR, for local governments and lake associations um, to combat uh, aquatic invasive species across the state. I think the cart barrier is still something uh, that people are debating. How do we most effectively get something in place that's going to actually prevent movement of the carp, um, you know, faster than, than the carp can move.
0: All right. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for spending a good long segment with us. We we talked a lot. I threw a lot of good questions at you. I appreciate all you do. Listeners appreciate all you do. Uh, congratulations. You cleared a committee here at the Senate Committee in terms of confirming your, uh, your, your role. So congratulations on that. Was that a week to 10 days ago also, I believe?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Um, it's just an incredible honor to serve in this role. So I'm uh, was proud to uh, get the nod from the committee. Um, proud to work with Minnesotans on these issues and uh, glad to have uh, folks like you asking the, the tough questions and, and all the questions so that we can uh, continue to improve our service to Minnesotans.
0: Great. Well, enjoy the rest of your weekend and uh, good luck with that college search. That's a, that's a fun process for a parent.
1: Yes, thank you. I will I will uh, take any advice you have uh, right. offline.
0: <laughs> you got it. Sounds good. Have a good evening, Sarah.
1: Okay, thanks, Rob. You too.
0: Bye-bye. DNR Commissioner Sarah Stroman, we appreciate her joining us. We're going to break. We're going to talk small game hunting. When we return, this is WCCO Outdoors. Welcome back to WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. I'm Rob Gerislein. We are here until the top of the hour. Then stay tuned for 60 minutes and then steal talking with Jerry Lynn Steele. As promised, I would like to share an interview now on winter hunting, small game hunting that is, with our friend Tony Peterson. So as promised, Tony is here now to talk about squirrel and rabbit hunting, which goes until the end of February, the long days of late February. Uh, hard to believe January's already wrapping up, isn't huh, it, Tony?
2: It is hard to believe, but we still have a uh, pretty good, well, what I think is the best month of small game. Maybe that, maybe that's because there's nothing else to do except ice fish, but I like February.
0: Yeah, we, we talked uh, on this station last week a little bit about uh, winter trout fishing, stream trout fishing. So that's another uh, you know fun activity that's that's going on right now. But uh, Tony writes for Meat Eater, TheMeatEater.com, if, if folks want to see what he's all about. Mostly writes about whitetails, but he's, he's very active in all forms of hunting. And I always like to talk to Tony this time of year when there's not a lot of other things going on. Yeah, that's something I think a lot of people forget about. A squirrel and rabbit hunting, uh, that's open until the end of February.
2: Yeah, I, I kind of, you know, I, I grew up doing that with my dad and small game hunted pretty hard for a long time and then kind of got out of it for a while. And the last few years, especially I've, I've got a couple of good buddies who who like to do it, and we've started to hit it pretty hard in February and do a lot of public land hunts and travel around a little bit looking for places. And, man, there's some good opportunities out there.
0: Tony, what do you think about like squirrel populations? I think squirrels are something everyone sort of takes for granted. We just think there's squirrels everywhere, especially if you live in town, right? If you live in the city or the burbs, you see squirrels all the time. They don't get hunted in in, in urban areas, so that's that's one reason that they seem ubiquitous. But sometimes you talk to folks who go to some of these public land parcels, and they're like, or or even private land, and they're like, I'm surprised I don't see more squirrels. What what do you see? I see a lot of squirrels. Okay, good.
2: <laughs> yeah, and it, you know, with public land, you, you can you can find situations where the squirrels feel pretty shot out. But in those situations, sometimes I find really good rabbit hunting. Okay. And I, I, I don't. I mean, it just it's partially a habitat thing, partially a hunting pressure thing. But you know, the the key that I have found to squirrels is if it's really cold, it's not going to be very good. You know, if you're if you're in a pretty rough cold front. I usually don't go, but if you get a nice day where the sun's out and it's even if the temperature's only in maybe the twenties in the middle of the day, that's enough. And then if you get those days where it's thirties or forties, I see a lot of squirrels. Like mm-hmm. it's it's really tied and you get a lot of midday movement, then it's kinda of tied to the heat of the day.
0: And what's that about? These are small animals. You know, they've got a lot of surface area compared to to a larger mammal. So when it gets cold out, they need to conserve heat, and they just they pretty much just lay low. Is that what? So they go and they, they we, we talk about squirrels have a have a trunk full of acorns. That's what they're doing those yeah. days.
2: I, you know, it's a calorie preservation thing I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And it you know, it's just you, you see this with all the animals that live up here, this you know, the ones that at least aren't hibernating is their their movement is tied to when they, when can they get some calories and, and not be at a calorie deficit by moving and putting themselves in danger.
0: Mm-hmm. So when you're uh, out looking for squirrels, how, how do you go about that? Do you sit in a, you know, against a tree and, and wait for to hear a squirrel and then go find him, or are you watching the trees? Tell me how a, a typical squirrel hunt unfolds.
2: Usually I'll be out there with a buddy or two, and we just kind of spread out and still hunt. And I, I love it because I kind of, uh, you know, I, li- I like staying active, you know, especially after a season of sitting in tree stands. I like I like getting on there and moving around, mm-hmm. but still hunting is just fun. It's just you know, you're sneaking through and, you know, I'm kind of I, I combine a lot of those small game hunts with some scouting, you know, winter scouting for deer and maybe looking for an antler or two. And just but if I'm just there and I want to have a lot of fun, I take my little 17 out and I still hunt and look for them and try to try to set myself up for a really good headshot. I just I love that.
0: You said, uh, "Your little seventeen—that's a little centerfire rifle. Is that correct? correct? Even uh, or no? That's a little rimfire, rim, isn't it? Yep, yeah, a little rimfire, yep. even smaller than a twenty-two, though. But that's—it's a popular caliber for uh, for squirrels, isn't it? It's so fun. Well, it's, and why it, is it, that? It's just a real tight, accurate shooting, uh, low recoil, little job. Real accurate.
2: And you have a little more range than a twenty-two.
0: And why is that? Just a little tighter, packed round. Is, is, is that? What's...
2: It's faster.
0: I uh-huh, think. Uh huh.
2: It's uh, a, it's like a mini rifle, like a real mini rifle hunt. Uh-huh. You know, I know a 22 is a rifle hunt, but it just feels like you're like a little sniper out there. It's just sure. different.
0: Yeah, a little little smaller bullet, but it doesn't take much of a bullet to uh, to kill a squirrel. You Aim for the head on him? Yeah. So you're out there squirrel hunting, uh, and then there might be folks listening who say, "Well, okay, what do you do with a squirrel <laughs> once you shoot it? You got you got some squirrel recipes you really like. How do you handle your squirrels after oh. you uh, after you, you whack a couple?"
2: I, I do a lot of like crock pot stuff with uh-huh. squirrels the uh, crock pot yep yeah i don't have. i know some people you know especially if you get down south there's like a real culture around making squirrels into something pretty special i don't I don't get too overboard with it, and i you know I like eating squirrels not as much as rabbits i mean i I like eating rabbits a lot more, but there's there's ways to do squirrels that are pretty decent
0: yeah, we'll t- we'll talk about bunnies here in a second uh some guys you can use a shotgun to hunt squirrels, right, but you're just you're gonna be picking on a lot more pellets right.
2: Yeah, I, I've shot squirrels with a shotgun before. I don't I don't like it because you're not going to miss. I mean, I, I shouldn't say that, but it's, it just feels different. Like, I like that precision of a uh-huh. little scope 17 or a 22. And, yeah, I mean, if you want to go out and you're like, I need to eat squirrels, then a little 410 or a 20 gauge is probably the way to go.
0: Okay. WCCO Outdoors, Rob Driesland here chatting with our friend Tony Peterson talking about uh, the month of February when we still have some hunting seasons open for two small game species, rabbit and squirrels. Now, we just talked squirrels, bushy tails a little bit. Let's talk rabbits. How do you approach that? Are you looking for brush piles? Do you track them? There, there are guys who go out and chase them with beagles, right?
2: Uh, yeah, I don't have any beagles. If I, if I got a beagle, I'd be divorced. Uh- <laughs> So I'm not a lot I'm of not, people would Yeah, I'm not doing that. Uh they're an acquired
0: know, taste beagles, aren't they?
2: Yeah, yeah. We we just look for, you know, old homesteads, brushy fence rows. Um, you know, we when you pheasant hunt a lot in the late season you find a lot of places where there's concentrations of rabbits, and it's pretty easy to read. By February, you can look and go, okay, there's a there's a patch of willows, there's probably some bunnies in there, or you can see, you know, a little woodlot with some cedars or something in there, and you know there's going to be rabbits there. You know, whether whether you get them moving in the right way, or you know, if it's cold enough, they'll be underground and it's not worth it. Kind of like the squirrels, uh, just not moving as much in the cold. But if you get the right day and you know how to read the habitat a little bit you can get some bunnies moving and it's pretty fun.
0: Do you bring any dog? I mean, it seems like what you're describing would work with you know, a lab, a lot of other dogs to go and sniff out a brush pile and maybe kick out a rabbit. Or is that just a bad idea?
2: I don't. Cause I'd rather have my dogs focus on pheasants and, uh-huh.
0: and you know, I
2: don't want to, I don't want to introduce that to them and think that that's why we're out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't, you know it it would be fun it'd be it'd be fun to train a flusher just to do that, but you don't need it i mean if you get in there and you know the one thing about rabbits is they leave a lot of sign, yeah, and they're pretty predictable and so mm-hmm. you 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 wade into some brush and you look around and there's a lot of rabbit sign it's like they're here somewhere.
0: Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. I used to go out with a bull when I was a kid and hunt uh, rabbits, and there was we'd, we'd hunt kind of sunny. South facing hillsides, that sort of thing. You know, where it would warm up. It seemed like the rabbits would like to find those places, and you know, they'd sit still, right? That, that's that's part of their defense is is not to run until they absolutely have to, right?
2: Yeah, and you you can find those situations where you know maybe two three o'clock in the afternoon when the sun's just getting ready to kind of start dropping, and they'll be sitting out sunning themselves. And I mean, you can find that with snowshoe hares, too, and that's really fun.
0: Well, we've got, and that's worth mentioning, we've got three rabbit and hare species in Minnesota. We've got the the old cottontail. We've got jackrabbits, which are pretty darn rare now. Uh, If you see a jackrabbit in western Minnesota, I wouldn't shoot it because it's... It's really rare. <laughs> they're, yeah. a, they're a pretty unique species. Uh, but, yeah, we got snowshoe hares uh, up in northern Minnesota, and I've never hunted them. Uh, Bill Marshall is, is of course, uh, a big snowshoe hare guy. You got much experience with those guys?
2: I, lo- I love snowshoe hare hunting. You want to talk about an animal that just takes you to cool spots? When you, when you start getting on some snowshoe hare, you know, I mean, it's, it's a big woods up north type of thing, and they don't, they, you know, they're, they're not like a cottontail. They're not going underground. And, it, you know, they, Bill, you know, Bill's really good at this stuff, but they get on trails and they establish some routes and they circle back and they're fun. I mean, it just, it's a different game than a cottontail hunt typically, but it can really be a blast. Whether, whether you're pushing them to shoot them on when they flush out or you're trying to sneak through and spot them, you know, a white rabbit in the snow sitting next to a cedar or whatever it is, man, that's fun.
0: Both jackrabbits and snowshoe hares will, uh, they, they change their, their color right I mean in the winter they're white uh, and then they will morph into their their gray summer fur <laughs> this spring and so uh, that, that's quite an adaptation they have that helps them uh, elude predators
2: yeah if you can I kind of you know I always say that if you can go out and you can spot and stock antelope with a bow and kill them consistently you can hunt anything and I think with snowshoe hares if you can sneak around and spot a snowshoe sitting there, and pop it in the head with a twenty-two or a seventeen, or even your shotgun. You're probably pretty lethal in the woods. Like you, you probably have a few things going for you as a hunter.
0: And there's a lot of snow up north this year too. So uh, it, it, you're going to get some exercise. <laughs> drop, you're going to sweat.
2: But if you, if you find them, you you know where they're going to be. You mm. can see you can see the sign. It'll be concentrated just like cottontails, and you can see their little trails.
0: Yeah. Anyone who owns. Even a suburban yard in the Twin Cities knows how much sign, quote unquote, sign uh, rabbits like to leave around between their tracks and their uh, their pellets, shall we say? Uh, and then, so finally, so you, you clean these guys up, you quarter them. Is that is that what a lot of guys do? They quarter them and what put them in a crock pot with some sort of cream of mushroom soup or something like that, and, and uh, let them stew for a while, and off you go. You got a pretty good uh, pretty good chunk of protein.
2: Yeah, you can do that. You quarter them out, and then you cut the back straps off, or you can you can piece them out. Uh, I learned this way, way back when I was in college. Um, is taking rabbit and and kind of like uh, chunking it up a little bit, and then cooking it in uh, apple cider and some brown sugar, and kind of that that sort of melts down and kind of sticky and you can serve it over like mashed potatoes with some apples and it's a it's a weird it probably sounds really weird, but rabbit lends itself really well to that dish. Hmm. So that's that's what I do and you can serve it with asparagus or something to kinda of offset that sweetness Fair. of that reduction. Uh, but it's really simple and it's pretty dang good with rabbits.
0: Sounds like a great winter dish. Well gosh, Tony, uh fun, fun content. Thanks for spending some time with me here and, and sharing uh some insight on a great hunting opportunity that I think a lot of us take for granted as we get into the late January and February.
2: Yeah, thanks for having
0: me, Rob. All right, uh, and fo- if folks want to read what you got cooking, they can go to the meateater.com.
2: they'll find everything I'm writing.
0: Perfect. Tony, thanks a lot for joining us today. Have a great uh, have a great week ahead. Thanks you too. That's our friend Tony Peterson. Let's break more of the broadcast after these messages. Welcome back, everybody. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk eight three zero. Just a few minutes left, and I want to jump in quickly with my last guest of this week's broadcast. His name is Eli Mansfield. He is the president of the Minnesota chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. He's had a busy weekend, and he joins us now. Eli, how are you doing? Did you did you survive the icebreaker?
3: Oh, we we survived. We thrived, Rob. We thrived. Thanks <laughs> for having
0: us on. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you coming on uh, on social. On short notice. I haven't had you on before. I appreciate it. We'll, we'll get you on again. Uh, but yeah, this was kind of like the Minnesota State Chapters rendezvous, you might say, right? And, and uh, Land Tawny, the uh, uh, the uh, executive director of the whole organization out of Missoula, Montana, he showed up, and uh, did he have some inspiring words during the event?
3: Well, he definitely did. Land Land is a great orator, and you know he's able to, to really bring the fire and uh, I think he uh, he came in, spoke to our group, and, and we got a lot of folks who reached out following the event saying, uh, you know, I'm ready, my my fire's stoked, um, how do I help for conservation?
0: Did you meet my new staff writer there, Brian Mosey? He was uh, he was on I yeah. did.
3: Good. I did. It was great to connect with Brian. <laughs> Brian, uh, uh, it was a short connection with all the running around, sure. but I think he had a great time.
0: I saw some of your pictures uh, on social media. It looked like, uh, looked like a real big crowd was there and that's great uh a little bit of newsmaking went on however right uh we i've talked in the past about greg and Pete Cavalli, and i they're Mm -hmm. become very close friends with those gentlemen they represented minnesota at the uh, national rendezvous two years in a row they won the big national cook-off uh when they when they won it this past i was 2022 now they said we're retiring well they were now the judges for the state rendezvous to determine who would represent minnesota at national and can you unveil who who won it
3: i i'm happy to yeah pete and greg were there uh as uh, as judges and we had some guest judges as well and um you know our our winners this year are going to be trying for a three-peat at the national <laughs> rendezvous no one had ever even won a back-to-back before pete and greg uh so it's uh it was great and our winners are actually jordan warren and constance cook uh they won the event this year they really uh, they had a great presentation, fantastic flavors, and and a really good
0: story to go along with their meal. Well, quickly, what did what was their presentation? Yeah,
3: absolutely. So they they actually made a play on chicken and waffles. Okay. Uh, rather than chicken, it was <laughs> pheasant, nice. and uh, the waffles were wild rice waffles. And I think the the real kicker uh, for these two was uh, they had a, a syrup that they had made from berries they'd foraged here in Minnesota, and they they ended their their speech with and this happened to be
0: the meal we had on our first date. Ooh. So they,
3: they had the story, they had us captured yeah. and the
0: food was fantastic. Yeah. Well, that's, that's uh, uh, pulling the heartstrings of the judges. Nicely done. <laughs> I, uh, that's, that's great. So does that mean they are going to represent uh, Minnesota at the rendezvous, which is coming up quickly, right? It's uh, it's like St. Patrick's day weekend, I believe.
3: It is. It is St. Patrick's day weekend. So Jordan and Constance will be heading out to Missoula, Montana, uh, and they will be uh, representing Minnesota in that premier event. So that the cook-offs really become uh Going out there is great. You get excited. You meet other conservationists. And at the end of the day, though, folks want to see what kind of food is being bring brought in from all over the country.
0: Eli, i have down on my last minute here. Real quick, if folks want to track down Minnesota Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, find what the group is all about, maybe even go to that uh, National Rendezvous, how can they find more information?
3: Absolutely. Uh, head out to our, our uh, website, backcountryhunters.org. Uh, that'll take you to the the main website, and then a really quick way to find us Instagram uh, at b h a underscore m n. Uh, we'd love to engage with you and uh, have other folks out.
0: Perfect. Yeah, I saw a lot of great posts on that Instagram account here this weekend. Eli, thanks for calling in. We'll get you on another time and spend some more, uh, spend a little longer segment with you. Sounds great. Thanks, Rob. Take care. Eli Mansfield from Minnesota Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. I appreciate him, the DNR Commissioner, and Tony Peterson joining us on this week's broadcast. Had a lot of great conversations. We are out of time. Stay tuned now for 60 Minutes, then uh, Steel talking with Jerry Lynn Steele. Thank you to producer Jonathan Lowe. Thank you to all the listeners who've been with us for the past 60 Minutes. We'll be back on this station one week from today. Rob Dreesline signing off for WCCO Outdoors.